Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, we're reminded that God is righteous in everything He does. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Objections to the Gospel. attention to the word of the living God. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Please read along with me. Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Please bow with me. I need grace. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Oh, Lord, our God, Father, we just very solemnly ask for your help as we enter into this just heavy and solemn time, Lord, you have spoken from heaven. You have given us the very words of life. You have revealed yourself. You have given us your scriptures. And so God, you tell us that when we come to your word and we come to meet with you, that there you will meet with us. And so, oh God, here we are a people bowing before you and begging, show us yourself, oh God. Father, I, I, I pray that you'll protect this time. Lord, there's so many things that can go wrong from distractions to our minds wandering to me teaching wrong things or saying foolish things. And I, I just pray, God, you protect this time. Please, God, give us grace. Father, I, I pray that every soul, all of us in this room, we will understand the truths that you have given here as we study through this passage. God, in that you'll bring change. Help me, Lord, just to deliver the food that you've prepared. Father, not to teach what's wrong, not to say things that are unhelpful, but Father, only what's true and right and good. Help all of us, oh God, bring change to every soul. And God, we pray that you will be glorified as more come to see your greatness. Please bless this time, oh God. And we ask this through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Good teachers are able to anticipate questions and even objections to what they teach. You see it in classrooms sometimes as a a teacher will stand before a room of students and he or she begins to communicate things. You know, this world is full of facts that are just absolutely so extraordinary. They just seem impossible. 
And as a teacher, we'll present some of these things about the world, how big the sun is, how far apart the stars are, things like this. A good teacher is able to anticipate those moments when a kid's going to have questions. And so a teacher might be going and all of a sudden she says something and all the kids raise up their hand and then she says, but before you even ask, and then she answers the question even before they ask it, there's an anticipation there. Well, the Bible does this a lot. Scripture, which is ultimately written by God, it is the explanation of reality. It's the description of what is. And friends, in at least a hundred different places, the Bible challenges ideas that we have that are just plain wrong. This sin nature that we have inside of us, it's tainted and corrupted, not only the way that we live, not only the way that we act, it's also tainted the way that we think. Just even at the very core of who we are and the way that we look at the world, we have ideas about ourselves, about God, about how to be right with God, about what's right and wrong. We have ideas about all things about this world that are wrong. And what the Bible is constantly doing is it's telling us what is. It's telling us truth. And so constantly as you read the scriptures, we're meeting truths that challenge what we've previously thought. And whenever you encounter a sentence of the Bible that challenges something you've previously thought, you've got a moment of decision there. You've got a, you've got a moment of dilemma. Do I believe God or do I go with the world? Do I go with what the country song said? Do I go with what I've always thought in my head since birth? You've got a moment of faith and a dilemma there in that instant. But a lot of times what the Bible will do is it presents truths and then anticipates the questions and objections that we will have. And let, me, let me just make this part clear. Asking questions of the Bible is a good thing. I'd even say it's a necessary part of studying scripture. You encounter a truth for the first time and you think to yourself, all right, well, well what about this? And, and then you ask that kind of thing. That, but so long as we do it with an attitude of trusting God, an attitude of fear and reverence of knowing, I know there's got to be an answer. I just don't know it yet. And I trust that God is right. I trust that God is true. That is very different than the other kind of questioning that can come. Not the legitimate kind of question, but the skeptical, unbelieving objection. There's a difference between questioning something, asking a legitimate, how does it work, versus an objection to the scripture. Well, the Bible anticipates questions that we will have, but it also does a good bit of anticipating objections that, script, that, that, that skeptics may have. If you look over to Romans chapter 9 for a moment, let me show you just maybe one example of this from the same book that we're looking at. In Romans chapter 9, after a passage that begins to teach what is some of the hardest truth in the Bible, I'm talking like pride-destroying truths that really challenge us at the core, God's sovereignty and, and his rule over all of this earth. Look at verse 14 in that chapter and, and kind of look what happens here. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. What's it doing? It's anticipating that someone is going to hear that truth and go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. God's not allowed to do that, is he? And the Bible answers, yes, he is. He is sovereign. You may not like the answers, but he is sovereign and he is king. 
And then jump down to verse 19, similar kinds of things there. The point being, the Bible does this a lot. The book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament is a series of questions that the prophet asks God on some pretty hard subjects. And then God answers. And here's the answer. And then he asks another follow-up question. And then God answers. And in the end, you come to know more of God's character because of it. Well, a similar thing is happening here in chapter 3. So we've just seen two chapters of some pretty difficult truths, difficult for our pride, difficult for our egos, challenges preconceived notions that we have about ourselves. And then sort of in response to those, the Bible takes just a few verses here to address some anticipated questions and even objections. There are three of them. If you've got a bulletin with you and you look at the back page there, there should be three points. These are the three objections that are raised in the text. We're going we're gonna to work through each of them there, but just kind of asking so that we understand the flow of the text. If this is your first time to ever read chapter three, verses one through eight, you're, you're picking up in the middle of an argument. What he began in chapter one, verse 16, he's, he's building an argument to show some things. We're kind of picking up in the middle there. That's, that's why it's helpful to be here every week to kind of catch on what's happening here. But what, what has come beforehand that raises some of these questions, even some angry objections? What has been so controversial? Well, first two chapters... We've seen God show just very quick, very clearly, every soul needs Christ. Now, that doesn't sound all that controversial, but let me go further with what the Bible said. Here's why every soul needs Christ. Every soul has spit in the face of God. Every soul has known God's laws written in our hearts, and we've rejected them. Every soul has known what God wants and we have rebelled against him. That is controversial. If you're new to studying the Bible and this is your first time to maybe look at the book of Romans here, I bet even just those sentences I just said have got you going, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second here. What about questions, maybe even objections? And this is why the Bible builds this argument of proving some things and showing this kind of thing. And, and just to show you that, you know, this isn't just me or just this weird church or Baptist or whatever, jump down to verse 10 of chapter three there and look and see what scripture says. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God that's on our own. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. We are missing our purpose. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Boy, that hurts. He continues on. Look at verse 23 of the same chapter. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So some controversial things are being said here. The first two chapters begin to explain and show some of all of this to sum up and say, we, every soul, deserve the wrath of God. We deserve punishment and we're going to get punishment unless, unless we find some other way to be right with God. Based on our works, based on our goodness before God, we're never going to be 
righteous. That's, that's the Bible's term of talking about what it means to be right with God, to be innocent before him. We're never going to be righteous based on our deeds, our purity, or anything inside of us. So if we're going to be right with God, we've got to find another way. The story of the Bible is how God planned and provided this other way, and it's in his son. The Son of God came to earth, took on a human body, died as the Lamb of God to pay the justice price for sin. And now all of those who come to him in faith. And there's this huge emphasis that it is on faith and not anything that you do. You don't make you righteous. We can only be right with God based on the work of someone else. Based on the substitute based on the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the Bible says, when we come to him in trust, look to Christ in faith, we come to rely on him. That heart turning of no longer trusting me, no longer trusting my religious goodness, trusting Christ at that instant, the miracle of the new birth is worked. This is the grace of God. We live in a place and time where this message is despised because at the very beginning it is saying, you're not okay. I'm not okay before God. And this hinge comes in this necessity of turning to Christ. But as we begin to walk through those kinds of things, chapter one was really not all that controversial as the Bible said that those who reject God will be punished. To the original readers, that part wasn't controversial. But here's the part that was controversial. To the modern readers, all of it is controversial, but to the original readers, the part that was the most a sticking point with them is that God was saying that those of this particular people group, those who are of the bloodline of Abraham, are not right with God just because they were born to this family. Chapter 2 spent 29 verses explaining that whenever you read the Bible and you're following the storyline of this group who comes from Abraham, this group that the Bible calls the Israelites or the Jews, if you're reading through the Bible the first time, you might say, why do we follow this people group so much? Well, out of all the nations of the earth, why this one? The reason is God chose to do some special things through this people he formed. He formed them, made promises to them. And then one of the biggest promises that God made is, I'm going to bless the world, the nations through you. But many within that group had come to misunderstand some things. Not all of them, but many had come to misunderstand some things. And at the time that the book of Romans was written, it was the most popular spiritual belief amongst that group we're all okay just because we were born in the lineage of Abraham. Kind of similar to today. I think the most popular spiritual belief in existence today is we're all okay just because we're alive, just because we're here, just because we're breathing, okay? See how the enemy just keeps recycling the same kinds of lies and such? And so what happens here in chapter three is the answering of some objections that some would have as they learn these things. So... The scripture is just said to those from this nation, you're not safe just because you were born to a family. One of the most logical questions that would come then is, okay, well then what good is it? 
to be born to this group or such like this. So this is how we roll here. Uh, one of the things I'll just mention lastly before we begin is this. I thought this was kind of cool. Even just this very week in conversation with church family and such, someone asked me the very question that is in verse one of chapter three. Not worded exactly like that, but essentially the exact same question. And I just thought, how cool is it? 2000 years later, we're still talking about the exact same things. The next logical question was asked. Well, here is the answer. We're gonna look at three objections that come here. Here's the first one, just named it the chosen of God objection. Read it again with me. Verse one, then what advantage has the Jew? As the Jewish man read chapter two, which just told him that all these external things don't make him right with God, many would have been surprised by that. But let me first of all say, surprise should not have been there. It's not like this was a hidden mystery. No, no, all through the Old Testament, God showed those exact same kinds of things. Well, then why, those who didn't get it, why didn't they get it? Well, let me ask you this. Is small town Southern Indiana still Christian-ish? Yeah, it's still Christian-ish, but does the average person understand the truths of the Bible? No. What do we have there? We've got like a casual Christianity a nominal and cultural and convenient Christianity. We call it a lot of different things. Well, the same thing existed in the first century. The same thing existed that many of those who were religious in a sense and did some encountering with the Bible still didn't understand clearly the main point of the Bible. So as chapter two just very clearly spelled some things out, you externally doing some religion doesn't make you right with God. You must inwardly be made right with God. There was some surprise, some questions by some and even some angry objections by others. So some would object. Well, if what you're saying is true, then what benefit is it to be born of a descendant of Abraham? That's the question. If you're telling me that the law doesn't save me, then what good is the law? If you're telling me that this circumcision, which was the sign of that covenant, if that doesn't make me right with God, well, then what good is it? It's kind of similar to the question, have you ever explain to someone that just going to church doesn't save you, just being baptized doesn't magically make you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Had somebody say, well, then what good is it? Well, there's an answer to that, but part of what is happening there is they're being confronted with a new truth they've not encountered before. So that's the question. Here's the answer. Look at verse two. What benefit is it? Verse two, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, meaning the word of God. What benefit did the Jewish man or the Jewish woman have from being born from in the lineage of Abraham? What was the benefit? He says, there's a bunch of them. And actually later in the book, it's going to pick up more of those benefits. Actually, when you read chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, it's kind of like it picks right up in this theme here, right there. But here's the first one that he mentions. God gave to them the scriptures. God gave the words of life. God spoke from heaven and gave them his very message, the, the map to salvation. Here is how you can have your soul made right with God and have eternal life. And part of the point that the text is going to make is that this group of people should have been 
the first ones sprinting down the road onto salvation. So is there benefit? You better believe it. The first benefit is they were clearly shown the way of salvation. And he's going to continue addressing that, but it comes in the second one. So here's, here's the second objection. Number two, the faithfulness of God objection. Look at verse three. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? All right, here's the objection. Wait, Paul. God chose the Jewish people. He said he was going to save Israel. And so now you're saying that not all of the individual Jews will be saved. Paul, are you calling God unfaithful and saying he is breaking his promises? You know, I find that objection kind of similar to the objection you've probably heard of those who talk about the love of God and say, well, if God is loving, then I just don't see how anybody could ever go to hell. I just can't see God sending people to hell and therefore reject the gospel. That belief is now actually held by a pretty large percentage of those in our culture. And there are several ways to answer both of those right there. An answer that the text doesn't provide, but that is an answer is read the rest of the Bible. Yes, God did make promises to the Jews, but the rest of the Bible shows how they were to receive those promises, not just by being born, but by being born again. And when it comes to the love of God, yes, the same scriptures that describe the love and the merciful character of God also explain God's vengeance, God's wrath on those who reject his way of mercy. So that's an answer, but it's not the answer given here. The answer given here is this. People refusing God doesn't make God unfaithful. This is a really critical argument in the midst of this. This is, a, this is really important that we understand this. They are not saved simply because they were born. Well, then what does it mean that they were God's chosen people? Well, it means that God chose to reveal himself to them. It means that of all the peoples on the earth, God showed them more than he showed anyone else. God gave promises to them. God clearly explained the way to be right with him in a way that the rest of the nations did not have. And so that is very similar to, I think it's just like, you know, the situation of kids who grow up in Christian homes, parents who are believers and on a regular basis, they, they present the gospel to their children and, and call them to come and believe. There's a similarity there. So, so for instance, let's say that I spoke, spoke to the kids in the room this morning, okay? kids and youth, you who are being raised by parents who are believers and they are showing you the gospel and trying to bring you to Christ. I could tell you, you're not a Christian just because your parents are Christians. You don't have eternal life just because your parents love Jesus. Let's suppose that one of them got a little smart alecky with me. Don't do that kids. Okay. But let's suppose one of them did and they yelled back. Oh, so you're saying that there's no benefit in being raised in a Christian home. I would say, no, 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 you're twisting my words because you listen to me very carefully. You have been given every earthly advantage possible. You have parents that on a regular basis are holding out the most beautiful message in all of eternity, the way to have life, and they are begging you to come and embrace Christ. You have parents who shed tears in their bed at night as they pray for your soul. 
You have parents who fast and beg God to show you mercy on a regular basis. They are showing you the way of life. You have been given every earthly advantage. You listen to me very carefully. If you reject Christ, it's not because of your parents' unfaithfulness and it's not because of God's. It will be because of yours. That's a pretty powerful point. And that's the main message of what God is saying here. The Jewish people had been given the word of God and the call to salvation. And before anyone else, they should have been the first running down that road. And yet largely, not entirely, but largely they have rejected him. They have refused Jesus as the Messiah, refuse him as their king, as their savior, as their Lord. And now I just, you know, just want to say it's taking me everything I have not to go ahead and preach what the rest of the Bible, what the rest of this book has to say on that subject, because it's going to say a lot. Love what it's going to say. Whenever you go to chapter 11, you're going to see God say that the day is coming. He has a plan in place where the day is going to come, where he does come to this group that does come to the bloodline of Abraham and draws them back to himself. There will be a massive repentance that comes towards the time of the end. The Bible's even going to say that the salvation of all of the nations, we are living in just absolutely amazing times. That here we are, all of these, all of these folks from the, from the nations, our ancestors were once idol worshipers. In the Old Testament, you did not see very many Gentiles, very many non-Jews come to faith in Christ. And yet here we are, a group of people from the nations following Christ, loving him. This is a miraculous thing here. It's exactly what Jesus said. And the Bible says that the day is going to come when the salvation of the nations has an effect on making the Jewish people jealous and they will want Christ and God is going to draw them to himself. So there's much more coming on this subject. So this is the first just like sort of like little taster that is given there. But the point is this in this objection. If you reject Jesus, if you reject the salvation that God has been offering and telling you about since the book of Genesis, that's on you. And that's not God being unfaithful. And let me say to you in this room this morning, even if you've never heard it before in your life, you're hearing it this morning. The Bible says you must be saved. The Bible says you are not right with God, that you have offended the living God. There is wrath that is coming on you and you need to be forgiven of your sins. If you reject that, that's not on anybody else's account. God is not unfaithful if you reject him. The words of life are being offered to you. Look to Christ. Come to Christ. That is the primary call that is given here. God is not unfaithful to his promises if people reject how they receive those promises. Look how he says it there in verse 4. So he's answering the question, may it never be. By the way, every time you see that phrase in the Bible, it was just about the strongest possible way to yell, no way in the Greek language. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That's a quote, by the way, from Psalm 51. 
David um, committed adultery with Bathsheba, sinned greatly against the Lord, and then he repented and came back to God. Psalm 51 is his prayer of repentance that he wrote in an act of worship, and he begins that psalm by saying, God, when you judge people for their sin, you're righteous. He's acknowledging. He's verbalizing. He's not resisting God. He is, he is openly testifying, God, I deserve for your wrath to come on me. I'm just so thankful that you have grace, that you have mercy. Well, and that matters because David was an Israelite. David was one of the heroes of the Israelites. And he acknowledges when God judges people for their sins, he is righteous. And so he is showing the rightness of God. In fact, the text goes on to say, even if God punished every soul, listen to me, if the 7 billion people on this earth all stood in opposition to God and we were all convinced that God was wrong and we were right, guess who's still right? God. If all of the cosmos stood in opposition to God, God is still in the right. You may think that God is in the wrong. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to change? God is in the right. I am so thankful that the one who rules the cosmos is also good. And he is in the right. Well, here's the third objection. The last one here. And it's the, most, it's the one that... It, it, intensifies with the most skepticism and, and even anger, the righteousness of God objection. A lot of times whenever you make a statement that someone disagrees with, if you're talking with someone and you make a statement, they disagree with you, they object. And a lot of times they'll object by ex exaggerating what you said and twisting it into something you didn't really say. Um, parents, have you ever told your children they weren't allowed to go do something? And then they say, Oh, you never let me do anything. Really? Okay, that's exaggerating, okay? They're trying to make you look ridiculous by twisting the reality a little bit there, okay? People do this in arguments all the time. Well, you have something similar that happens here, particularly in verse eight, but there's a little bit of a building that comes before that. So let, let's work through the argument. Start in verse five there. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Right, here's the statement, and then, it, and then it gets questioned. Let me, make, let me make a point, and this is a biblical truth. Our unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness. God is in the end going to get glory from even all of the sin that happens here on this earth. God is ordaining and orchestrating history in such a way that in the end, he will be worshiped, adored, and loved even more because of all of the sin that has happened here in history. Now, we could say there are numerous ways that that happens. One is, you know, beauty is seen even more clearly against the backdrop of ugliness. Light shines brighter in the darkness. We can say all of those kinds of things. But I think we could even point out something like this. Think about the, the account of Judas when Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas did something absolutely awful, betrayed uh, the Son of God in, in the worst betrayal of history. He did something wicked and evil. And yet, God was glorified and what Judas did fit into the plan of God. Now that's, that's a big, that's big sovereignty. That's big providence of God. 
Even what Judas did was prophesied hundreds of years before it ever even happened. It fit into the plan of God that Jesus was going to go to the cross. Somebody can hear something like that and go, well, wait a second then. Is it righteous of God to do that? Is it righteous of God to take evil and to use it for his glory? That's part of the question. So even a Christian could ask that in a fearful and respectful kind of way. And the text then answers it. It answers it by saying, uh, we'll read the rest of verse five there. The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. Notice that he puts that in there. So that you know that Paul is not asking that, but he's saying this. I'm just quoting what some would say. Verse six, may it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? I think there's reference to a verse from the Old Testament there that was very common and very widely known in the book of Genesis where it said, will not the judge of all of the earth do what is right? Of course, God is righteous in everything that he does. Every time God does a work, it is right and it is good. Well, then the the questioning continues. Look there in verse 7. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? All right, let's come back here. If the first statement was true, all sin is in some way going to glorify God. Here's how you twist that. Here's how you exaggerate it. Here's how you twist the words of the Bible. Well, then if all sin glorifies God, by golly, I'm going to give him some glory. Okay, that's, that's some of the argument there. You may think that sounds crazy. Okay, and it is. Good, good job. Okay, this belief has been in church history for 2,000 years. It's addressed in the New Testament. It comes up in places like the book of Jude. And it, there have been movements and groups all throughout church history who have taught things like that. So it sounds insane, and it is, but it is actually something there. But it is a twisting. It's a twisting of truths of Scripture. And then verse 8, it goes even further. And why not say, and then look at the parenthesis there, as we are slanderously reported in some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. So here is what some claimed that Paul taught. By the way, let me just tell you, If you get active in sharing the gospel, if you get active in talking with the world, engaging with them in their spiritual beliefs and pointing them to trust in Christ, okay, they are going to twist your words. It is going to happen on occasion. Somebody's going to take something that you said and go tell somebody else, you know, he said that, man, only their church are the only ones going to heaven. You ever heard that kind of thing? People will twist words that you say. Well, people took words that Paul spoke and they twisted them and went around telling people, well, that Paul teaches that you can just sin all you want. That Paul teaches that Christians ought to just live in rebellion because sin glorifies God. And and I do just want to make clear, okay, that craziness has been taught. There have been wackos with Bibles, okay, who have taught weird things like that. But that's not the true gospel. In fact, the book of Jude says... If you turn the grace of God into licentiousness, that word means to cast off all restraint on your flesh. If you take God's grace and you use it as an excuse for you to live in rebellion to God, he says your condemnation was marked out long ago, meaning you will see hell because you have believed a false gospel and not the true gospel. And in fact, 
letting you know a little bit more of what's to come in the book of Romans. This topic is going to be brought up again in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is going to be all about this question right here. If we're saved by grace and not by works, then do I really have to obey God? If I turn to Christ today and then I'm confident I have eternal life, does that mean tomorrow I have to really try? That topic is brought up in chapter six. And the answer is yes, you do have to try and it'll be shown why. We'll get into all those ins and outs and things that are there. Okay, but let's, let's come back to this part right here. Some were claiming that Paul preached a message of sin as you please. You just do whatever you want. Free grace, free grace. Don't even try to obey God. And here's how he follows it up. To that he says, their condemnation is just. What's that saying? Those who twist the words of the gospel, those who oppose God by being deceitful with the scriptures will find that they have missed the grace of God. If you get active in sharing the gospel and engaging with the world, you're going to hear a thousand different excuses. And what about, what, 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 what about, what, what about, what, what about? It's going to all come there. If there is a deliberate twisting of the scriptures in order to justify myself or in order to mar the gospel, you will find you cannot believe the gospel that you're slandering. These are objections to the gospel. And there are all kinds of objections to the scriptures and the gospel. Maybe this morning you're here not because you're a follower of Christ yet. Maybe you're investigating, but you've got like 20 different hangups, 20 different questions and places. You're just not sure that you can buy into this. Well, here, here's what I want to tell you. Somewhere out there, there's a Christian that probably has the same 20 questions that you do. But that Christian loves God. That Christian trusts God. And the reason that he's a Christian and not a skeptic is because of that basic attitude of trust. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you get all of your questions answered. Um, every Christian has like this long list of things we're ready to ask God. But being a Christian does mean I come to trust him. I trust that there is an answer. I just don't know it yet. Maybe I get it in this world. Maybe I got to wait till the kingdom of heaven. But I do know this. God is righteous in all of it. We may have questions about how things work and how does that passage link with this passage and what about all these kinds of things. But at the end of the day, trusting Christ is what makes you a Christian. And so I, I, I just want to give the invitation to you. If you've got hangups, objections to the message of the scriptures, message of the gospel. Keep searching for the answers, but don't wait till you get them all answered for when you decide whether or not you'll turn to Christ. You'll never get there. You're always going to have some of those issues in your mind. But what the gospel does call you to is to trust the living God, to come to him through his son. Do you believe that he is the righteous one? Do you believe that Jesus is the anointed one sent from God, the King, the Lord, and the place, the only place that you will be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life? When you come to trust in Christ, but place your reliance, place your dependence, your faith on Him, the Bible says you will be converted. At that moment, you will become 
right with God, forgiven of sins, adopted by God, and receive eternal life. The hinge is trusting Christ. So come to Christ. Let me close this in prayer. Oh God in heaven, Father, just pray that all of the truths we've looked at, Father, you'll take and bless. It's possible for us to leave here and this have no benefit if all of these things just pass out, pass out of our minds and we just go on to live. But I pray, God, you'll bring what only you can. God, that you take this word as a seed and Lord, that it grow up to fruit, that it turn into obedience, that it turn into trust in you and following after you. I pray for the Christians in the room, O oh God, those who have trusted in Christ. And I pray, O oh God, that, Lord, you will continue to build us, transform us, and use this text. But I also pray, God, that there, if there's any in the room that has not turned to Christ, still been holding back because of objections or things they're not sure about, Father, I pray, break down those walls and draw them to yourself. Father, please give us your blessing as we leave. We ask for your grace and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Objections to the Gospel. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.